we do gather to celebrate the mercy of God that calls us his own. What, what a precious thought that is that we've already been celebrating in psalm this morning. I want you to find in your copy of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, I want to say welcome to you. Let you know that we are progressing verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. We have been going very slowly through the book of Ephesians. In fact, this is our 45th week in the six-chapter book of the Bible. Tackling just a few verses at a time, looking at the depths of God's Word. We've seen the riches of who we are in Christ over the first three chapters. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, we're now seeing how we live because of it. One of the main reasons why I'm committed to us preaching verse by verse, verse through books of the Bible is it forces us to come to texts that we wouldn't normally run to teach or preach on, and that is this morning's text. This is not, if you're wondering what topic we picked, this is not a topic we picked today. This is us going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, and we come to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 today. Again, the beauty of going through whole books of the Bible is we see the whole counsel of God's Word, and it makes us wrestle with things that perhaps we've not wrestled with before. This may be a text you've not even heard preached or taught before because it's one that we typically don't get up in the morning and go, wow, I'm going to go read this passage for my devotional reading. I'm going to read this passage to go teach my friends today. We come to these four or five verses here that honestly for a lot of people have been very confusing when they've read them during their Christian walk. They're verses that for many, if we're honest, have been very frustrating to people when they've read them because it's verses that address two groups of people at the time, slaves and masters. So your translation may call it bond servants, you may call them slaves, it's the same idea. So we're coming to a text of slaves and masters today. Now much harm has been done by this text in history when it's been misunderstood and misapplied. Even in our own nation's history, this text has been used to justify sinful, ungodly enslaving of people. So how do we come to this text? How do we properly understand what Paul is saying when he addresses groups of slaves and groups of Masters. Well, there's three questions out before you can read the text I want us to ask to make sure we understand and have a correct context to know what we're reading today as we talk about slaves and masters in Ephesians chapter 6. So three questions to give us some framework to look at to know what we're looking at today. First of all, what is slavery? I think we all know what it is, but let's get our definition. Slavery is the ownership of a person by another that deprives that person of his or her freedom. Slavery is the ownership of a person by another that deprives that person of his or her freedom freedom. Slavery exists because of sin. It is atrocious, it is ungodly, it is unbiblical, and it's a tragedy that's been around through most of human history. Unless we think it still doesn't happen today, it is still very real today. All over the world, people are enslaved. In our own country, friends, I know we don't like to look at it, there are people still enslaved. Not like it used to look like, but today, due to the widespread use of pornography and sexual immorality, there's so many, particularly women, who are enslaved in the sex trade today in our country. It's a horrific tragedy it's because of sin in the world. The second question, though, is as we think about this, and this is so important, what was slavery like when Paul was writing? What was slavery like when Paul was writing? Because there's a big danger in this text that we impose on this text. When we see the word slave and master, we impose on it what we think of today with that, or what we think of from our nation's history. Slavery in the Roman Empire and slavery in the United States history were radically different things. Not just a little different, radically different. So we have to be very careful as we approach this text to not impose on this text what happened in our country's history, in that very dark spot of our country's history. It was very different. What I mean by it was different, I want to give you four distinctions about Roman slavery, bond servitude, whatever you want to call it, that would be different than what our minds typically think of. So four distinctions of what Paul means when he addresses slaves or bond servants. Number one, at the time, race played no factor in slavery. 
race played no factor. In the Roman Empire, there was slavery, there was bond service, but it was not based on the color of one's skin. It was not based on race. You had slaves who were Jewish, you had slaves that were Gentile. You had slaves who were Roman, you had slaves who had foreign backgrounds. It was not at all based on appearance in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So on the surface level at the time, when Paul's writing, you could not tell who was a slave or who was free based on the color of their skin, based on how they taught, based on their ethnicity. That played no factor at all. Number two, at the time, slaves often served in specialized positions of responsibility. Slaves served in specialized positions of responsibility. We think of our country's history and slaves did the grunt work. They did the manual labor. At the time, yes, there were some who did that, but most of the slaves were doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, and even sea captains. They were people who had been given specialized training And yes, they were still in slavery, but they were performing specialized functions. Their masters invested in their education to get them trained for what they were going to do. So first, it was not based on race. Number two, they served in specialized positions of responsibility. Number three, and this is huge, it was temporary. Slavery at the time was, for the most, there were a few exceptions, but for the most, was temporary. It was not for life. Almost all slaves at the time, when Paul's friends had a realistic hope of being emancipated, and usually by the time they were 30. So most slaves would serve for a period of years with the realistic hope that their masters would release them around the time they were 30 years old. In fact, it was very common at the time when a slave was released, the master gave the slave a large sum of money to send them on their way to help them get started. And many of those slaves, those bond servants, cared for their masters, and they chose to voluntarily continue working in that same household at the time. It was temporary. And number four, when they were freed, they became Roman citizens. When they were freed, they became Roman citizens. So again, we have to be careful when we read the word slavery. We're imposing often our mindset from our nation's history. That's not what Paul has in mind here. He's talking about a type of bond servitude, not that he's justifying it, but a type that, where the race is not involved in that, where they're trained for specialized things. It's temporary, not for life, and where they gain Roman citizenship. A real example of all four of those principles is in Acts chapter 23. If you remember in Acts 23, Paul appears before a Roman governor named Felix. Felix was a former slave. So, so Paul is standing before this person of huge influence in the Roman government who himself was a slave at one time. He was a Greek person who had become a slave, a bondservant. He had gained his freedom because slavery wasn't for life. He had apparently had some type of training along the way by his masters. And when he became a freedman, though he had a Greek background, he was made a Roman citizenship when his slavery ended, when his bondservitude ended. And he became a position of a Roman citizen and was able to rise in authority to where Paul is even brought before him as a person of authority, as a former slave himself. That is what it was like at the time. With that said, though, friends... That's not justifying it. Paul's not justifying it, and I'm not justifying it either here. Slavery was wrong. It took a person made in the image of God, and it put them in a place of service to someone else. And it's ungodly, it is unbiblical, and it's sinful. So that raises our third question. Why does Paul address it? Why does Paul even talk about this? Why is he even bringing up the issue of slavery and masters? Because it makes people really uncomfortable to read it. He's addressing it because it's a reality at the time that has to be addressed. When Paul's writing this to the people in Ephesus, at the time in the Roman Empire, they, they estimate about there were 27 million slaves in the Roman Empire when Paul wrote this. For him not to address this, he'd be neglecting a huge aspect of reality of this. They say in places like Ephesus, one-third of the people in the city were slaves. So again, he's writing to people in a context in Ephesus, and one-third of the people in that context, presumably in the church as well, would be it's stuck in this broken thing called slavery in the world. But he's also addressing it here, friends, because think about what we've just seen. He's been talking about the relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children. Now, slaves and masters, isn't that random? 
No, because at the time, most of these bond servants were functioning in the person's home. He's dealing with how people interact in a close relationship in the home. Some scholars call this the household code. He talks about husband-wife, parent-child, slave-master, because they were all in one home together for the most part. So Paul's addressing how these people in close proximity would relate to one another in God's plan, even in the brokenness of this world. I know, though, that Paul's addressing it, it makes some people uncomfortable, wondering, well, why doesn't Paul just condemn it outright and, and, and tackle that and just say everyone should, should release their slaves? Well, we don't know why he doesn't directly do that. God has raised up voices in the church to do that, and we're so thankful for them. You look at the past, look at John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, who was a former slave owner himself, who then became one of the great proponents for releasing slaves. William Wilberforce, you look at people in our country who have gone before, who have been the voice of God to help us see from the Scripture why slavery is so evil. God has raised those up. That wasn't Paul's focus. But let me say this, Paul's not passive. Everything Paul's written in Ephesians, think about what we've seen in Ephesians 1 through 6. Paul is unraveling the very foundation of slavery in his writings. Think about what Paul has said just in Ephesians so far. I want you to see a few verses on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. If we go back to what he says, he's talking about how God might reconcile us both. Who's the both? The Jew and the Gentile. The greatest racial conflict, if you will, at the time was the Jew-Gentile conflict. And Paul's saying in the church, God's going to reconcile both Jew and Gentile, people who hate each other and barely speak in public. He's going to reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's unraveling the foundations of slavery by saying, in Christ, it doesn't matter what your background is, we're going to be one together. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. We already seen this one before. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs are who? The Jews. Wait, wait. The Jews and Gentiles who hated each other so much can be fellow heirs? Yeah, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Paul, in all that we're seeing in Ephesians, is unraveling the foundation of slavery and racism by basically showing us that in Christ there is no distinction, that in Christ we all have equal access to the promises of God. He even tackles it more directly in the, another book he wrote about the same time, the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. It says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's destroying the foundations of racism or superiority in the culture. And so though he doesn't directly address it like many today would want him to, his whole theology kills racism. His whole theology kills slavery. It kills using people for ourselves. His whole theology builds up serving in the name of Christ. And he does directly address it in one place. In the book of Philemon, it's a short one-chapter book. It comes right before Hebrews. In Philemon chapter 1, he writes to a believing slave owner at the time because his, because his slave had run away to Paul and had come to faith in Christ. And so Paul sends this guy's slave back to him. And this is what he says in Philemon. There's only, I would say chapter 1, but just verse 8 because there's only one chapter there. In verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man... And now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. This is the the former slave. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. That just means that Onesimus has now come to faith in Christ. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So you notice Paul's attitude towards this guy who's been running away from his slavery. He's sending his heart. Verse 13. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But... I prefer to do nothing without your consent. 
Lord, that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul's building this guy up to see what he has to do as a follower of Christ. Here, verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back for forever. No longer, now catch this, verse 16. No longer is a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So did Paul directly address it the way perhaps people want today in Ephesians? No, but we know at least this and perhaps others. He encouraged the believers to see their bondservants no longer as servants, but as brothers in Christ and to treat them accordingly. So he's going to show us basically how the gospel changes every relationship, even for people stuck in the unjust system of bondservitude at the time. He's going to tackle heart attitudes in our verses from Ephesians chapter 6 today and show how the gospel can even speak into those situations. Because he's tackling hard issues of masters and bond servants, it makes it very applicable to us today. He's going to talk to the bond servants about their attitude towards their masters and their attitude towards their work. And that means, friends, that we can look into our own hearts as well because we all are people who have authority over us as well. Whether it's a teacher at school, whether you're a child with a parent in the home, whether it's your place of employment with your boss, how do we do our work? How do we respond to the authorities God has put over us. And so as we read this text today, understanding culturally what's happening in the context of time, but also looking to our own hearts, not going, oh, that was just 2,000 years ago in Ephesus, but what does God have to say to me today about my attitude and my heart towards authority in the positions that I am in in life? So we come to Ephesians chapter 6, and we look at verses 5 to 9. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? And I think that set the record for the longest introduction to a sermon ever at Gateway, right? <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. We pray that God will bless the reading of his word here. Ephesians 6, 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Would you pray with me? Father, I do pray this morning as we come to a tougher text that, God, you would give much grace this morning to help us understand your word. God, I pray you would clear up any confusion in our minds of this text. And, God, that you would not let us just look at this from a historical perspective, but, God, you would speak to our hearts today. God, every single one of us is in a place where there's someone in authority over us. And God, I pray that you might even be opening our hearts to our attitudes towards authority over us, our attitudes towards the work you've called us to do, whether it's schoolwork, whether it's our jobs, whether it's something else. God, would you speak to us today, even through this text, Lord, we trust that you will, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one thing I want you to see this morning from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9 is simply this. Regardless of your position in life, we faithfully do our work unto the Lord, knowing that he sees and rewards. Regardless of our position in life, we faithfully do our work unto the Lord, knowing that he sees and rewards. So, so Reed, if you'll put that up on the screen for us there. This is our main idea for the morning. Regardless of our position in life, doesn't matter whether you're slave or free, doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, CEO, janitor, doesn't matter that. Regardless of our position, we can still faithfully do our work unto the Lord. Not trying to do it unto men, but unto the Lord, knowing that God sees and rewards. 
What do we see that from our text this morning? It doesn't matter what our position is. This is he's dealing with a hard attitude here. He's taking the gospel to our hard attitude, dealing with all of our excuses, and he's going to go straight for our heart. How do we view the work that has been set before us? So go back to verse number five, and notice the first group that he addresses here. Paul speaks to two different groups. First, he says, bond servants. Now, just pause there. He addresses them directly. And friends, this is huge. This is significant. Paul speaks directly to the slaves of the time, directly to the bondservant. There's two huge implications of that. That means, first of all, they're part of the church. They're not kept separate. There wasn't a church for slaves and a church for the masters. They were all together at the time. He's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And we saw last week it was significant. He addressed the children. That means the children were in the assembly to hear the reading word. Now he's having this read in the assembly. When the believers are gathered in Ephesus, there's going to be a section that says bondservants. The gasp in the room, I can only imagine, would have happened when this letter was read for the first time in the church in Ephesus and the slaves heard them being addressed directly. And the gasp might have come from the master as well because in the, in the Roman culture, you did not address them directly like this. He's addressing them because they're part of the Christian community. The church in Ephesus was apparently living out Ephesians 1 through 5 already. They already had integrated, if you will, and the church was already together, unified as one body in Christ, a bond servants and masters together. He addressing them is also significant because it means they have moral responsibility. They had to make a choice that they had not chosen to be in a place of slavery. How would they respond? They had a choice. They'd be accountable before God of would the gospel change their attitudes. So he addresses bond servants. Look down in verse 9, though. He also addresses masters do the same to them. He also addresses the masters. They are no less accountable or no more accountable before God. He addresses both groups, regardless of their position in life. They have an accountability before God to walk worthy. And in case they miss that, he's very clear there in verse, in verse 9. In that very last phrase, he says, Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So God is the Lord over all, and there is no partiality with them. Friends, it does not matter at the time if they were slave or free, God saw their heart. It doesn't matter today if we're rich or poor, if we're the boss or the employee, if we're the teacher or the student, if we're the CEO or the janitor. That doesn't matter. God sees our hearts, and he speaks to every single one of us, regardless of our position in life. And particularly here, he's going to speak to how do we view the work that has been set before us. What is God's standard of force? And the God's standard, God's standard of force related to our work is that we do our work faithfully unto God. We do our work faithfully. Again, it doesn't matter our position. Look back at verse 9. Masters do the same to them, what's the same? That's to have the same attitude. That's to have the same approach to work, the same faithfulness, the same desire to please God. So now, where did he spell that out? Go back to verse 5 now. What does he say we're to do? Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. We looked at the word obey last week. Remember from last week, the word obey is a compound word in the Greek. It means to be under someone and to listen to someone. So to obey literally means to hear under someone. So I gave you a definition of obedience last week, but let me remind us what that is. To obey means to actively listen to instruction with a desire and a plan to follow it. To actively listen to instruction with a desire and a plan to follow it. So Paul speaks to people who are under authority and says, your job is to obey the authority over you, to listen to their instruction with a desire and a plan to follow that. Now, last week, friends, there's a big qualifier here because we're never called to obey when it's sinful. We saw that in the parent-child relationship, but let me kind of explain that here in this context. Well, I think there's actually three qualifiers here where we're not required to obey authority over. So let me give you those three where we're not required to obey authority. Number one, if it's immoral. 
If what you're being asked to do, whether it's the, bo- the master telling the bond servant, whether it's the boss telling the employee day, a teacher telling a student, parent telling a child, it doesn't matter. If what they're asking you to do is immoral, you are not bound to obey that. I mean, think back to Exodus chapter 1. The Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. They were ordered to build things, and they would obey those commands. But think about what happened when the Pharaoh became jealous of their power and when every baby boy killed. And he commanded, he ordered all the Hebrew midwives to when baby boys were born to throw them in the Nile to kill them. He was, they were under orders. They did not obey that. And in, Exodus, in Exodus chapter 1, the midwives would not comply with that order. Why? Because it was an act of faith. They were under a higher authority. What their earthly masters were telling them to do was immoral, to kill innocent life. And so they chose to defer to a higher authority. They did not obey their earthly authority when it contradicted God's standards there. They had an act of faith and obedience in refusing to obey. So we do not obey if it's immoral. Number two, we do not obey if it's idolatrous. If it's idolatrous, we do not obey either. You think back to Daniel chapter 3. The emperor at the time, who was very, very self-centered, built a statue of himself. He wanted everyone to worship him, worship his statue. You go to the young Jewish exiles there in Daniel 3. Three guys, remember the story from your childhood, hopefully Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Great names there. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three young Jewish exiles who were living at the time. And the order was to bow down to the statue. They did not obey the authorities over them because the command was idolatrous. They were not going to worship a false god. And so they refused to obey, and that was an act of faith for them. That was an act of obedience to a higher authority of God. So you do not obey if it's immoral. You do not obey if it's idolatrous. Number three, you do not obey if it suppresses the gospel. Do not obey if it suppresses the gospel. We saw this in Acts chapter 4 last week. Peter and John, the whole town is getting stirred up because of their faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. The religious leaders, the authority calls them in and says, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. We saw last week in Acts 4, they very respectfully said, we can't do that. They were men who were faithful to authority, but they were not going to follow authority when it meant suppressing the gospel. So the big qualifier when it says bond servants obey, we obey authority unless it's immoral, idolatrous, or it suppresses the gospel. But if it doesn't do those things, God's standard for our work is we should submit to the authorities over us. We should be faithful to listen and to seek to do what we have been told to do. But God takes us deeper than that. He doesn't leave it as just, oh, just do what they say and have whatever attitude you want. God goes to our heart. The gospel goes to our heart. And so we'll see in these verses that follow that faithfulness in our work is not just, well, I'm going to do it begrudgingly, but it's an attitude of how we do it. The only verb in this, in this long sentence here is obey. Everything that follows us describes what obedience looks like from a heart perspective. Look at how he describes it. There's several things. Obey your earthly masters. This is back in verse 5. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean with fear and trembling? We kind of get the, the perspective of the master telling the person to do this. And the person's like, please don't hurt me. I'll do it. Please don't hurt me. That's not what he's communicating here. Fear and trembling simply means deep respect. That means the master tells the person, you need to go do that. And the person says, I am glad to do that for you. He's saying it's not just enough to obey, but you obey with deep respect. He goes on in verse 5. With fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. That literally means a singleness of heart, being undivided. That means that the attitude towards their authority is the same whether the authority is there or not. That means if the boss is in the room or not there, the teachers in the room are not there, that the heart attitude is I'm going to have a heart to follow regardless of whether or not the person is there for me to show that or not. This conveys the idea of honesty, sincerity, pure motives. But if we're going to put on those type of attitudes, that also means there's attitudes that have to go away as well. Look at verse 6. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Now, 
you've seen this before, Paul likes to make up words that don't exist. And this is one of those. This word that we see, I service, some of your translations may say to gain their favor. That word had never existed in Greek until this point. Paul coins and writes a new word. Don't do things for I service. What is he meaning? Don't do things to be noticed. Don't do things to please people. Don't try to impress. You're not serving. You're not doing your work for your master, your teacher, your boss at work. You're not doing it for any of those things so they can notice you and give you the pat on the back. You're not doing these things only when they're around. You're going to be sincere heart, pure motive, consistent. You're going to do your work with excellence whether they're there or not. Not to be noticed, but to do what is right. So put off eye service. Put off people-pleasing. But he also tells the person in authority there are things they have to put off as well. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. For the follower of Christ, for the, who, if they're in a position of authority, there's never a place for threats, yelling, sinful anger, all those things. Think back through all Ephesians 4 and 5 that we looked at. He's told us over and over again to put off all those expressions of sinful anger and threats and yelling. And his whole point of all this is regardless of our position, we put off all of our sinful attitudes and behaviors, those attitudes towards those above us or those below us. And we put on respect. We put on sincerity. We put on hard work. We put on a gentle spirit. Regardless of our position, we can faithfully do our work with those things. Now, let me say this, friends. We can't manufacture those attitudes. We've seen that over and over in Ephesians. What he's calling us to right here is not going to come naturally for us. A person under authority doesn't naturally put on this attitude. A person under authority naturally becomes angry that they're not in the place of authority. They become bitter. They can maybe different being watched than when they're not being watched. The person who's, excuse me, who's the master typically is the person who's going to threaten and try to control and try to maintain that authority. That's our natural response. But he says, no, no, that's not fitting if you're a follower of Christ. Understand who you are in Christ. Understand that God judges impartially and then seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, friends, he produces in us these attitudes that are so incredibly countercultural. And think about the church in Ephesus at the time when the bond servants with joy were serving their masters. When the masters weren't controlling but were joyfully taking care of the needs of their bond servants and doing what was best for them, that was incredibly countercultural. And friends, today, in a culture that hates authority, when we joyfully submit to the authorities over us and when if God's put us in places of authority with employees under us or students under us, that we get to then serve their needs and do what's best for them, friends, it is so countercultural because it's an incredible picture of a life that can only be transformed by the gospel. Regardless of our position in life, we are to faithfully do our work. But why? That's one thing I love about Paul's writings. Paul doesn't leave us wondering. He doesn't say, go do it. He gives us reasons for why we do what we're to do. Why should we faithfully do our work regardless of our position in life? He gives us two reasons here, I believe, in this text. The first reason we faithfully do our work is to worship God. We do our work faithfully to worship God. God. Now, there's a key idea I don't want you to miss in here. Look back at verse 5. There's three, fra- there's three phrases that we must make sure we do not miss here. Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would who? As you would who? Christ. He's saying, do your work as you would do it if you were doing it directly for Christ. Now, verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people believers, but as bond servants of who? He's going, and they may be going, wait, wait, I thought I'm a bondservant of that guy, or I thought I was an employee of that company, or whatever. And Paul goes, no, no, you're ultimately doing your work to Christ. Verse number 7, rendering with a good, sorry, rendering service with a goodwill as to who? As to the Lord, that ultimately when we do our work with sincerity, with honesty, with faithfulness, with an undivided heart, with respect, with all those things, we are worshiping God. That means when we as citizens obey government laws, even laws we don't like, 
we're worshiping God. When students obey their teachers, they're worshiping God. When children obey their parents, they're worshiping God. When employees obey their employers, they're worshiping God. And even in this very unjust, wicked structure of slavery, when a slave obeys his master, when it's not sinful or idolatrous, he's ultimately obeying Christ and worshiping him. And when a person in authority quits using their authority for selfish gain and uses it to bring good to other people and to genuinely care for people and to serve them with Christ-like humble leadership, they are ultimately worshiping Christ through their obedience. That's what verse 6 is all about here. Not by the way of eye services, people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So regardless of our position in life, friends, we faithfully do our work unto the Lord. We do as an act of worship. But there's a second reason that Paul gives us of why, regardless of where we find ourselves, we can faithfully work unto the Lord. And this is incredible. We can, we can work unto the Lord because we gain rewards. We gain eternal rewards. He holds out for us the promise of future rewards. Look at verse 8. This is stunning. It says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. It doesn't matter your position in life. When you seek by God's grace to have those attitudes that we can't produce, but that he produces in us, that we were just looking at. When we seek to do our work with those attitudes, he says that you will receive back from the Lord. Notice in verse 8, this first word there, knowing. This is a participle. Here's our English lesson at the time. It's a causal participle. That means it's showing you the reason why you should do what was right before it. Paul's very clearly in his grammar here saying, okay, obey your authorities, knowing something. Here's the reason why. I'm going to hang this out before you. This is the main reason you should do this, knowing you will get rewarded if you do this. He's pointing us to eternity, not just to the here and now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Read if you'll stick that one on the screen for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We're reminded of what's still to come. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul here is pointing us back, or pointing us forward to that future day when we will stand before the Lord and when there are rewards offered for what we have done. Friends, that means that people on earth may not have seen our obedience, but God does. People on earth may not have seen sincerity, but God does. People on earth may not have seen us honestly doing our work, but God does. People may not have seen us having a respectful attitude to authority, but God does. And he reminds us that even though we may not get the pat on the back now, in this world, when all of us broken, we may not get the rewards in this life now. Future rewards are coming. That's why in Matthew chapter 6, he has this beautiful promise of what we should be living for and working towards. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20. There he goes. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will, your heart will be also. Paul's turning our mind from the present brokenness of the world to eternity. And think at the time, if you were a bondservant at the time, and he tells you that, yeah, your masters may not see these pure heart you have, but God does and God will reward you. Think of the hope that would breathe in their heart and soul, knowing that for this short period of life, and for them even shorter period of bondservantude that hopefully would end within a few years, they have hope that God who sees all will reward. And friends, that's our hope as well. You may be at a place where you're under authority at work or in some place to where it's tough for you and you're seeking to be faithful to the Lord. Your hope is not in this life. Your hope is that God sees you as you seek by his Holy Spirit within you to walk in faithfulness. Even in a tough situation, God sees and God will reward. Regardless of our position in life, we faithfully do our work unto the Lord knowing that he sees and he rewards. 
So I want to ask you, friends, have you experienced the grace of God? This is so real. It's not just I prayed a prayer and I'm not going to hell. But it's so real. It's changing how you view work. That you now have a God-given longing in your heart to do your work with honesty, sincerity, purity as unto him. Has God transformed you like that? Are you finding that God is still changing you? Do you see him radically transforming you and altering you to where even when you're in tough situations, that he's changing your heart to where you long to reflect by his grace, not by your strength, what he has laid out here? Friends, are you more and more finding that you're not striving your own strength to try to manufacture this, but you're seeing more and more the overflow of being filled with the Holy Spirit and him producing these type transformations in you? But one last thing I want to challenge you with this week. Are we living with eternity in view? Are we living for the here and now? For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Are we living paycheck to paycheck? Are we working just to get money? Are we working just to make ourselves feel good? Are we working to get famous? Or what are we working for? Are we working as unto the Lord? Are we doing our work with a heart's desire to worship God and to invest in that which matters for eternity, friends? Regardless of our position in life, by God's grace and His Holy Spirit, we can faithfully do our work unto Him. Friends, if we will do that by His grace, rewards will await us in eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, I do thank you for your word. We're thankful for all of your word, the verses that we love to cling to and memorize and the verses that are tougher for us as well. But you're so good, just like we sang earlier. You're so good to show us your whole counsel. And Lord, I pray today, Lord, I don't know where everyone's at in terms of their work relationships, in terms of what you've called them to do, in terms of the authorities that they're having to submit to that perhaps are tough, but God, you do. And so Lord, I pray that today you might give hope to each one of us. But regardless of our position, regardless of whether we, where we are, that God, our hope would be in you and you transforming us. Our hope would be you so filling us with your Holy Spirit that we have a longing tomorrow morning, wherever our work is, to go in and do our work with honesty, with sincerity, with respect for those in authority over us. And Lord, I pray that perhaps even with our attitude that you give us, we might be a light to those around us. Perhaps you've put around us coworkers, bosses, people who work under us who do not know you. Lord, I pray this week because of your transforming work in our lives that we might make you known, Lord, because of something so different in our lives. Lord, I pray for all of us, regardless of employment status or where we are or authorities around us, God, that you would so stir our hearts to live for eternity in view, where we confess it is so easy to live for the here and now. It's so easy to get short-sighted and only live for the next paycheck or live for the next accomplishment. God, would you turn our eyes to eternity and help us live with eternity of you all this week. And Lord, we will give you the praise for all that you do. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?